Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. So I'm Richard Youngs. I'm senior fellow at Carnegie Europe and professor at the University of Warwick in the UK. I'm co-founder of the European Democracy Hub. Uh, pleasure to be with you. Uh, and I warmly uh, recommend Visegrad Insight for all matters and uh, interesting debates relating to democracy in the region. It's the 29th of November 2021. Um, uh, my name is Wojciech Przybylski. Uh, next to me is Tatiana Poliak-Gruich, a program director for uh, Europe's Neighborhood. And today, indeed, in the uh, weekly outlook, uh, we have a couple of uh, questions regarding what's going on in the in the neighborhood, particularly in, in Ukraine. Uh, so why don't we start with that before we go into the other events? Uh, in Central Europe. Tatiana, we have had uh, the press announcement of President Zelensky about the possible coup um, that has been stopped. There were also further reports about uh, mercenaries being recruited for uh, Wagner Group related uh, to, to be involved in fighting in, the, in Donbass. And uh, yeah, there are more news coming in, including a new diplomatic offensive from Ukraine, um, portrayed, among others, by, by the letter of a Ukrainian ambassador uh, to, to Germany. So why all of a sudden so much focus on Ukraine and what to expect in the near future? Okay, first of all, I wanted to mention that the press conference with Volodymyr Zelensky was something else than he intended. Um, he did not answer the questions that are pertinent in the society, in particular about Wagner Gate, also about the offshores and all other sorts of uh, troubles and scandals, actually, that are happening recently in, in Ukraine. And also, he didn't answer, like, what's the plan to, uh, to deal with the military uh, uh, potential military aggression of Russia already. So instead, he was trying to uh, show off in a way and prove that, uh, you know, he's the one uh, who tries to hold the situation together while he doesn't. Okay, so that was that was a stunt in a way from the PR stunt uh, that we have seen at the press conference. But still, the threats are real. The, in in on, on the border, we have U.S. agencies reporting to European counterparts about the possibility of an aggression that is that is a continuous buildup. The, there is a communication, political communication between Vladimir Putin and the European leaders. NATO is issuing statements. So situation is nevertheless quite serious. It is very serious. And I should say that I personally do not see any indicators that prove that the government of Ukraine is ready to combat that. But, uh, I mean, people uh, people have been mobilizing uh, before. It might be that the government of Ukraine is not, is not ready for that. But still, it is sending uh, a lot of signals. We, we have uh, read those statements uh, from the Ukrainian ambassador, who is putting a lot of pressure on Germany, as if demanding that Germany recognizes its debts, uh, long-term uh, long uh, debts to Ukraine, uh, from even ranging from, you know, the, the, the history of the Second World War. And now it seems um, a lot of pressure is, a lot of pressure is on, on Germany indeed. 
from how from how I see is uh, that foreign service of Ukraine remains pretty much the only bastion that is actually interested in defending Ukrainian uh, or actually working on defending Ukrainian interests. You know, I think I think much more needs to be done and Again, this is my personal impression based on what other experts also say and what, what the situation is looks like is that uh, presidential administration is pretty much sabotaging all the preparations uh, or, or majority of it uh, to to combat Russian Russian aggression. Well, that is pretty pretty strong um, um, uh, assessment of of what's uh, what's at stake for Ukraine, definitely in in uh, security peril. And uh, and now we are also, uh, I mean, part of Central European. I mean, it projects on the Central European uncertainty in terms of security across the borders. Of course, with Belarus and uh, and other uh, countries of the EU, there is a there is a gathering this week, also one of many, about the situation also in uh, Latvia in Riga. There. Uh, their attempts of the allies, especially European allies, to stand together and to present um, common uh, common European position on that. Well, much is at stake here, um, specifically because because we have uh, a lot of, I mean, multiple uh, tensions or uh, challenges to the security. Uh, and but but still, it seems the Ukraine is the the key because of its size, because of its importance. Anything that happens in Ukraine is going to project on every other insecurity around the region. Oh, absolutely! And um, you know, Ukraine is the first sort of on 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 the hit, the closest to Russia. I mean, it's 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 logical. And also, if referring to. Uh, to the to one of the most recent articles by one of uh, Russian top uh, uh, politicians, um, Patrushev, he mentioned that um, you know it, it's going to uh, to blow out in Ukraine soon, and then millions of Ukrainians will uh, have to to migrate. Um, you know, he didn't have to say specifically where, but we all understand that this is going to be uh, Europe if it obviously happens. So that is that could be another crisis coming in in the pipeline. So that is really indeed not only a Central European fear, but but there is an understanding across Europe in the context also of the pandemic, in the context of all the uh, crises we have seen on the border with Be- Belarus, that if things are really uh, intense, uh, intense um, when it comes to security, pure security, not only democratic security, but democracy is in the background there because the president, as you say, um, is on the conflict lines with the democratic institutions or the, the sometimes democratic in- institutional setup uh, quite often, uh, abusing uh, abusing the, the powers he has to... Um, uh, not to serve the best interests of, of the country. Again, strong uh, allegations here. More to read about it soon also. Uh, Ed Visegrad inside uh, Oksana Forosina's pieces upcoming, um, hopefully this week, where she portrays the the situation uh, in Ukraine, the Russian historical narrative and the consequences of these narratives for Ukraine, but also for the rest of Europe, should, should we uh, see how they play out 
in the uh, in the military uh, field. We're also organizing an event, a uh, foresight conference, exactly on the 30th of November. So uh, very soon, uh, actually next day it's from tomorrow. this, it's tomorrow <laughs> from this recording. And uh, tell us a little bit more about that as you're preparing the uh, the, the the event uh, to happen in person in Warsaw. Yeah, absolutely. So last year, actually, I will start with the background. Uh, Visegrad Insight published scenarios report about uh, on on Eastern Partnership 2030. And at this conference that will be happening tomorrow, uh, we'll be looking at those scenarios again and um, assessing which one worked out and which not. Uh, we'll have a great group, a fantastic group of experts coming from um, EAP countries, but also from Poland, because we do organize it in Poland, obviously. And we will discuss like what's happening. Uh, do we need to expect, do we have, do, can we expect maybe another scenario happening? Can we um, think of of other potential scenarios that are different from what we uh, presented last year? And we have released the scenario report, foresight report, EAP 2030, exactly uh, on the first week of the pandemic uh, in 2020, in March, um, that was uh, preceded by intense uh, series of workshops involving, as you said, the uh, Eastern Partnership partners, think tankers, but also Central European ones. The project has been carried out with the German Marshall Fund, the Blacks, uh, Black Trust, Black Sea Trust, um, and has been has resulted in a multiple discussions and deliberations also in the EU. So we'll have also EU. Um, EU Commission officials uh, coming, connecting uh, in one case. Um, there will be also partners and colleagues from all over Central Europe and EU countries joining from ranging from Belgium, Germany, uh, Romania, uh, Sweden uh, at this foresight event, which is preceding the, the expected EAP conference uh, in December. But it will definitely focus, just like our report, also on differentiation, not, not to put all countries of EAP in one package, but also it will focus on differentiating between uh, the, uh, the, the, the dynamics of particular countries, but also look for parallels or inter interconnections. And in the report, I think we, we quite um, nicely and still um, uh, valid, validly from the today's present day view, explain the scenarios. Some of them not happening as as they were uh, as they were expected in a positive uh, in in a positive um, in a positive sense. Tomorrow's event, the Foresight Conference, builds on this report, builds on, on this scenario, and has been um, uh, created and has been uh, put together. Uh, by us uh, on the request by the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, which treats very seriously the upcoming uh, summit in December and wants to seek additional, um, and additional insight and foresight that we are happy to provide. But maybe now, uh, very briefly, onto the uh, outlook, uh, the items that we list in uh, in our Monday's review um, are ranging from uh, uh, the the events in Hungary, the the EU regional context. We have we have had Hungary blocking uh, the common European position, European Union uh, lines on the summit of democracy. That. Um, 
that has been uh, sort of um, expected uh, in in the context that Hungary was not even invited or willing also to take part in the summit for democracy um, that is taking place 9 to 10th and Richard Young's in an interview just uh, in the second part of this podcast will uh, tell us more about it. There is a deteriorating situation on uh, when it comes to COVID. Central Eastern Europe seemed to be much much in, uh, in much worse conditions, specifically Slovakia, when it comes to number of vaccinations and then expected lockdown is coming um, with the new Omicron uh, variant of the virus, uh, these countries are now likely to be going into a panic mode, locking down. More lo- more lockdowns are expected again in centuries in Europe than in other countries. On the other hand, uh, in Czech Republic, there's some oh, also relates to COVID. There was a peculiar scene when Mr. Zeman on a wheelchair in a container, um, glass container in his palace was welcoming the new government, um, the, the new government that has been sworn in. And across the pond in in Washington on the 2nd of December, there is a, also a hearing of, of liberal mayors from V4 capitals, the mayors of so-called Pact of Free Cities, uh, including Mayor of Budapest, Mayor of Warsaw, Bratislava and Prague, who will talk about uh, the state of democracy. So um, a lot this week with uh, focus uh, predominantly on Ukraine, on the events and expecting uh, events there. But um, uh, next to the hard security, there are events that link to the democratic security across the region. Um, the, 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 the expected meetings, statements will be closely followed by us, including the Bucharest 9 meeting. And uh, the events also, well, let's not forget, this is the situation is far from over from uh, from the border between Belarus, Latvia, Lithuania and and Poland. That uh, creates uh, maybe a fog of war, but also creates a, a lot of tension um, between the EU and, and Belarus and has not been yet resolved. Particular, maybe one other uh, focal point on, on Hungary, as we are also expected to see um, candidate Peter Markizai in Warsaw, the um, candidate for the prime minister in Hungarian elections in the upcoming um, uh, April 2022 uh, run. Markizai is coming to Poland to meet with the leaders of the Polish opposition. He'll meet several of them um, and uh, he is going to uh, be uh, a case study for the Polish counterparts of how the opposition can be united. Yet the opposition in Hungary is facing a lot of trouble internally between themselves, but also uh, as with the rumors have uh, been, I mean, the recording has been leaked by Direct 36 showing the Hungarian's officials are asking their internal security agencies uh, to actually treat the opposition in Hungary as an external threat and to deal with this threat by use by use of their means, uh, which is a direct uh, threat uh, in this context uh, to the democratic process and democratic security of, of that uh, of that country. So uh, expect uh, uh, heated debates, lots of uh, lots of them. And if you want to have a clear picture and, and structured one, go and check our weekly outlook that has been released on our site uh, this week as every as every Monday. Uh, thank you, Tatiana. Sure, thank you. And now we'll move on to the interview with Richard Youngs. 
Richard, terrific that you found time to join us. Um, we spoke not so long ago at the Open Eyes Economy Summit in Krakow when we spoke about Central Europe, uh, what's in for Central Europe ahead and, and, and after the Summit for Democracy expected 9 to 10 of December. Um, but we did not have time then to touch upon your newest book, Rebuilding European Democracy, uh, has been just released. Um, and uh, you seem to offer quite a lot of reflection. You, you put together mm, the picture of, uh, of the uh, first struggle with democratic backsliding, but then also responses of government, civil society to a global phenomena, um, especially how it looks like in Europe, of democratic backsliding and, and the, the efforts, the resilience efforts to to find back and to, to build back also. I wanted to touch uh, base on this and, and, and just start from uh, asking you how important this discussion on, on resilience, democratic resilience, uh, is in, in your opinion. I mean, there are many frameworks how to, tack- how to tackle democracy, democratic uh, issues today. Uh, you seem to be very much focused on democratic resilience. Why it's so important? Yeah, so it's been quite a sobering and even bleak decade for European democracy. And all the focus of um, analysis and debate has been on the problems affecting European democracy. And there have been dozens and dozens of really good books and articles put out that try to offer an analytical explanation for why European democracy has uh, suffered such acute problems over the last decade. So I wanted to shift debate and say things are really bad, things are really worrying, there's a lot to be negative about, but there is another side to the equation, which uh, are all the efforts taking place at multiple different levels to uh, resist, to defend democracy, to keep democracy working well, and also to to rethink what democracy means. So we know all the uh, indicators in some countries, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, look rather negative. The trends are not uniform. Uh, uh, political trends quite different across different European states. Overall, there's a, a modest decline in, in democratic quality in, in Europe over the last decade. But to some extent, democracy has resisted. The book doesn't minimize all the negative side of the equation, but it does say that at many different levels, people, different actors are at least mobilizing, trying to resist. And the book points uh, suggests that there are two strands to this. One is resistance. One is people simply trying to defend core democratic norms that are being challenged by the most illiberal governments uh, across the continent. But there's also a more subtle, uh, a more subtle effort to qualitatively renew, rethink uh, the way that democracy works and add more innovative elements to uh, prevailing patterns of representative democracy. Both those things are going on simultaneously. They often overlap and interrelate uh, with each other. The book basically argues that these trends are significant. There's a lot going on. We shouldn't just talk about all the negative sides of illiberal populism. There is a backlash to the backlash. Uh, but, But at all these different levels, there's still a long way to go before we can talk about democracy being defended really successfully. So each area of democratic resistance has gained significant traction, but the book argues that in each area, 
there are weaknesses and limitations to these pro-democracy Let's strategies. discuss a couple of examples then. I'll start with uh, some immediate examples from our contemporary political uh, backyard. Uh, next week, I mean this week, uh, on the 2nd of December, we have a hearing in the U.S. Congress of uh, mayors of, of the cities, of towns across Central Europe, including uh, uh, Warsaw mayor, Budapest mayor, and several others, who have been uniting on a platform to exactly fight back and organize a different uh, perspective on, on democracy than their governments would offer. So I think uh, it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting development, and I think you, you seem to tell, be fairly interested also in in how the bottom up, the, the cities and towns, democracy can help uh, rebuild. So, uh, well, maybe maybe you could offer a, a few reflections on, on how that is important and what are the limitations. And then there is a second bigger experiment, and also wanted to touch upon um, this this. Conference on the Future of Europe and how it goes, because it's a big experiment in deliberative democracy. And we, when we speak about innovation uh, in democratic setup, uh, the deliberative democracy exercises have been always a big hope. But what are the limitations again? Okay, so the two levels. At the, at the level of a city uh, um, level democratic efforts, uh, you're right, this is uh, one of the most significant trends in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, but also across Europe more broadly. And these efforts basically encapsulate a lot of the different levels of democratic resistance and renewal that the book uh, talks about. There's a lot of protest, uh, spontaneous protest mobilization at cities. There's a lot of more formal um, uh, deliberation happening at the city level as well. New kinds of political parties, new kinds of alliances being struck in the name of democracy, digital initiatives, also um, perhaps most dynamic at the level of cities, finding new ways to get citizens involved in municipal level uh, politics. Often these kinds of political innovations are not, not about the big national level problems of democracy, but they are giving um, citizens perhaps a more uh, indirect way of becoming engaged in politics and giving the democracy a more meaningful dynamism at the local level. Uh, they're not a panacea. They're not a solution to all the democratic ills affecting Europe, but I think they do represent the beginnings, at least, the first tentative steps towards uh, some kind of democratic rebuilding. And they show that citizens do want to engage, particularly in, in issues that are of significance to their daily lives. So I think all that is significant, uh, although it has a long way to go to prove uh, significant at the at the kind of macro political level. Then there's the conference on the future of Europe. That's mm -hmm. almost at the other end of the spectrum, at the pan-European level. You are right that the citizen panels within this conference are unprecedented. This is a much more participative um, exercise than any previous exercise looking at the future of Europe. Um, uh, hundreds of citizens are currently, as we speak, engaged in this process. That uh, harbors uh, well for the future, but we know there's still a long way to go. It is still uncertain at the moment whether the uh, the citizen involvement will actually translate into something concrete and whether it will, whether it will lead to some kind of permanent improvement 
in the way that citizens engage with and have influence over uh, EU policies. At a bigger political level, the uh, long-debated democratic deficit of the EU is still getting worse, so there's a lot to do still in finding more systematic ways for citizens to be engaged. But the conference uh, certainly does represent a promising first step in what could be a much more democratic pattern to EU and politics. So you, you are on the side saying that uh, EU needs to be a, a democratic, not not a, a liberal mindset. So, so there is a transformative element in in this for the EU, definitely. Um, uh, but now you you've been uh, elaborating on on the potential and the spirits uh, up high among the protesters. Indeed, we see. Um, I think uncomparable even with Western Europe levels of, of mobilization uh, among civil society in Central Eastern Europe, but at the same time doesn't seem to translate into into effective pressure on the uh, representative governments. Would you offer some explanation for that? Why that is so? At the same time, you know, with such a vibrant civil society, we should have it somehow. I don't know reflected in in the indices, but it's not. Yeah, I think you're right, Watcher. And and certainly the book does not idealize any of these uh, democratic initiatives or efforts. It it, um, makes the case that these are a significant part of European politics today, that the story of European politics now is not only about uh, populist threats to democracy, but about efforts to safeguard democracy. But it does argue, it, it, its core argument, it, the thread of the argument through the book is that all these reform initiatives have their own shortcomings and at the moment remain a little bit tentative and cautious and narrowly defined. Uh, you are right that a lot of the uh, uh, popular mobilizations, can be very dramatic. They can mobilize large numbers of people. Uh, they can also evaporate fairly quickly. They do not always translate into uh, very coherent, uh, firm political agendas that e- endure over time. Um, but, but I would say that protests have been, and, the, and these more kind of popular forms of mobilization, civil society initiatives, have been criticized for many, many years for being uh, weak, for being um, rather uh, disruptive, for not being very constructive in the kinds of uh, solutions and ideas they bring to the table. Uh, to an extent, those criticisms are still valid, but it, st- it seems to me that they're, in some cases they are a little bit unfair, that protests in some cases, Romania might be one example, have proven relevant. In some cases, protesters, civil society organizations, and political parties are beginning to combine a bit more effectively than they did uh, in in the past. So uh, it's true that many protests do not have the kind of impact uh, hoped for, uh, but protesters themselves are learning. They're learning more effective tactics. More established civil society organizations in some cases are learning that they need to harness the potential of popular mobilizations. And at least in some countries, new kinds of political parties are uh, exploring the potential of getting these kind of movement-like dynamics into the way that parties uh, function. I repeat, None of this is a panacea. None of this has gone far enough. Uh, There are plenty of reasons still to be negative about the future of democracy. But we are seeing, I think, a restructuring, a rethinking of the way that these efforts at democratic resistance and renewal actually work 
Um, well, they do work European across uh, different European countries, but you also point out to one other challenge, and there's a very contemporary challenge that relates to COVID-19, but also digital surveillance. Um, somehow they are combined in the in the you know in the in the book in one in one because uh, they both came together in a way. I mean, they, one trend amplifies the other. The, the need for digitalization, but also increased uh, omnipotence of state in the digital uh, toolbox and some surveillance. And at the same time, uh, COVID and COVID restrictions and also all the negative trends um, that we have uh, associated with, with digital social media, uh, how, uh, how they are amplified by, by the social media, including uh, hate speech, but it also including uh, disinformation. But now very, very... Um, uh, serious in in um, uh, in the effects when the disinformation con- uh, concerns vaccination, for instance. Um, I want to touch upon here to the uh, to the EU response to that because there is a lot of um, uh, there are a lot of ideas. There is a lot of discussion and policy making on on that level. How do you assess that, and how do you assess generally the role of the EU in uh, actually helping? For the national uh, nation-state democracies to function better. Well, specifically on the digital issues, I think the EU uh, is catching up, and national governments as well. I think they've been behind the curve on the digital threats to democracy. I think that's genuinely recognised. That's not a controversial point. Uh, and in the last two or three years, EU efforts have certainly begun to to catch up and to begin um, thinking through the need for uh, more stringent regulation of tech companies, social media, of, uh, of o- online activity. That, in fact, has become one of the most uh, prominently debated issues on the European agenda. It's a very complex uh, issue that has many, many different strands to it, many of them beyond the scope of my particular book. My book makes perhaps one core contribution, which is that a lot of the new regulations coming online are necessary and in many cases they do need to go further but but there is a slight danger that the whole digital agenda is being approached um, almost exclusively through the lens of um, more of stricter regulation uh, when regulation may unwittingly have certain negative or undesired effects on freedom of speech and other democratic freedoms so if regulation is needed it must also be complemented by a more bottom-up approach to more vibrant forms of digital activism that enable citizens to actually hold institutions to account in the way that they are developing these new regulations. And in uh, many European countries, this kind of digital activism is beginning to happen. It's a new uh, phase, a new cycle of digital activism that is building on some of the lessons learned from the first wave of digital activism from the earlier part of the 2000s. It's beginning to learn how to combine the best of online with offline activism. It's not always effective, it's not always successful, but I think we are, as the focus on these EU-level regulations intensifies, we are beginning to see a certain uh, rethinking and uh, a more intense vibrancy of the bottom-up approach to democratic digital activism as well. And I think the future, in the future, we will see more debate about how to combine the best of uh, EU-level regulations to defend online rights, digital rights, uh, with this more positive agenda of getting citizens engaged 
through a proactive use of digital uh, tools uh, to combine the best while protecting us from the worst of the digital sphere. Fantastic. So, um, dear ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, listeners of this podcast, rebuilding European democracy, resistance and renewal in the illiberal age. Um, that's the book that will give uh, a great read, I think, and reflection after, on one hand, the Summit for Democracy uh, is held uh, early December and uh, before the new year begins with uh, obviously a lot of uh, challenges ahead. If you want to spend a part of your Christmas holiday rethinking what um, strategies are effective in your daily activities, in your efforts, and also in, in uh, where to put um, most energy in, that is, uh, that is the book and has been, uh, and the ideas behind the book have been explained by its author, Richard Youngs. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you.